0: Good evening. My name is Jeremy. In case I haven't met you, welcome. I'll leave you to make your own judgment about whether or not I belong in the lean staff team. I like to think of myself as more like warm and cuddly rather than um, rather than any 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 other designation. Um, yes, I'll leave I'll leave it there rather than tell you what Hugh Van Niekerk calls me. Um, okay. So, this evening, we're going to be looking, we're going to be continuing on our series. Uh, we've been looking for a number of weeks in this whole series of exiles. And we're looking at the question what does it mean to be an, uh, to be an alien in a foreign land? We're saying that as Christians, there's some sense to which we, we don't really belong in this world. Our home is in heaven with Christ. And so it's natural that we, we do not um, walk according to the same drumbeat so to speak, as everybody else around us. We have different values, different beliefs, different identity to the people we live around. And then last week, we started to ask the question, well, how do, what does that mean for how we interact with a world which is, at times, feels deeply at odds with the values and identity and beliefs that we have? Of course, this was the context that Peter was writing into. He's speaking into a, a context where people think of Christians as a kind of weird, degenerate, perhaps even dangerous cult. And sometimes it might feel like people feel the same way about Christians today. And again, in this context, Peter gave a really uh, surprising answer of how to live with those kind of, um, of, those non-supportive authorities, if we can put it like that. He said, "Submit to them, obey those same evil authorities, because God has sovereignly put them in place." Saying, "Walk in humility." Be good citizens. Be like Christ who submitted to hostile authorities even up to his own death. And in this passage that we're about to look at, uh, Peter is narrowing the focus. He's saying, what will you do if you're an alien in your own house? If the people who are closest to you don't understand you? I think about this, when I graduated from university, I'd become a Christian in my second year at university, and I went back to live with my parents. And I love my parents very deeply. I've got a great relationship with them. But they're not Christians. I'd come to faith in Christ. And I started to feel this gulf between us. They didn't understand some of the decisions that I was making. They didn't understand the choices, the, the, my new value system. It all just seemed really weird to them. And a sense of a, a distance between us. I think that's the kind of context that Peter is speaking into. He's dealing with the subject of marriage, and he's speaking to these wives of non-Christian husbands. Perhaps they've they've come to faith in Christ, but their husbands haven't. And he's saying, well, how are you now going to live as an exile in your own home? How are you going to live with the fact that your husband doesn't understand this crucial thing about you? So Peter is speaking to them, but He's not just speaking to them. He's giving us a vision of Christian marriage, saying what does Christian marriage look like when you allow your whole life to be shaped by Christ? And he's giving us a really distinctive vision, describe it as like an alien vision. It's hugely countercultural to the way we think about marriage in our culture in almost every respect this evening, I want to unpack that for you. I want to, sh- I want to show you it, it, how, how it tastes different, how it, the whole design is different, how it looks different. And the, the common denominator to all of that is that Christ is at the center. I want to show you what difference does he make to your vision of marriage. Now, I want to say right up front that for some of you, some of what Peter's saying may well deeply offend you. It will will feel very different to how some think about marriage in our culture. I want to encourage you to stay with me. Don't be distracted by, by some of the language here. We'll go through and explain it. But I think it's fair to say that this passage is one of those that can be easily misunderstood. But I want to suggest to you that actually when you get behind the language and when you see the vision that Peter has for marriage, I want to suggest to you it's one of the most beautiful visions of marriage that you can ever hear. I think Peter is giving us a beautiful vision of marriage because ultimately, in the Christian understanding of marriage, marriage is a picture to the greatest story ever told. Marriage is a window into another world. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, the gospel that God loved us so much that he sent his son on a reconciliation mission out of love to die for us that we might be reconciled with God. Marriage serves that purpose to show us, to demonstrate the gospel. And I want to show you what that looks like. So, we're going to focus mainly on, on chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. But because Jesus Christ is so central to this vision, we're going to start a little bit higher up where Andrew looked at last week from verse 21. So, page 1766. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. Clothing you wear. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I just want to read verse 8 for you as well. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let me pray. Lord, we just want to um, submit to your word this evening. We want to come and listen to your voice. Would you come and shape our lives? Would you come and speak to us? Lord, we long to hear your voice. We long to be conformed to the pattern of your son. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to be your distinctive people in this land. So we just start by surrendering ourselves to your ways, your purposes. We say, your ways are perfect. Your, your love is better than life. Our lips will praise you. Help us to see your vision of marriage. Help us to be excited by the gospel again. Help us to want to live lives of surrender, submission, sacrifice. Help us to become the people that you've called us to be. Amen. So why do we need to look at this? Why do we need to look at this? Well, first off, this whole passage speaks to really the central question that we've been looking at in this whole series so far, which is, are you willing to be an alien? Are you willing to be an alien? See, the leading idea in this passage is that husbands are to lead their families, to sacrificially and lovingly lead their families in the manner of Christ. And wives are to trust and follow their leadership. Now, this idea may well feel deeply foreign to you. It feels traditionalist or old-fashioned. It seems to belong to a bygone era. And it's likely that your your vision of marriage and relationships in general will have been formed by the culture that you've imbibed, the TV programs you watch, the films you see, um, magazines, etc. And it's likely that much of what you've read and imbibed in in the culture will not fit with the Christian vision of marriage and relationships. So right, as we kind of compare these two voices, the question will be looming large behind us, which voice are you going to listen to? Are you going to follow the ways of Christ or are you going to follow the ways of the world? And perhaps in this question, among many, this is one of the the kind of greatest areas of tension, perhaps, when we think about are you going to listen to Christ or are you going to follow the world? Which will you follow? Will you be faithful to Christ's countercultural ways? Are you prepared to obey God when it goes against your deepest instincts? You see, think about what obedience is. Obedience, in some ways, is very easy when you agree with a thing that the person is telling you to do. Obedience becomes difficult when you disagree. The true test of obedience is not when you agree with the person, it's when you disagree, or when it seems to jar with your deepest instincts. So are you prepared to obey God when it goes against your deepest instincts? That's the first reason we need to look at this. Second of all, of course, this passage has significant implications for our relationships, for our our vision of marriage. Maybe if you're married here, not many of you are, but it has very real implications for you to consider how Christ will will call you to shape your lives. Some of you are not married, but expecting to be married or hoping to be married. In a sense, I want to paint you a picture of, of what you're running towards to give you a vision of what your trajectory could look like. And I think, of course, this vision of marriage will shape some of the decisions that you are making on the, in the, in the lead-up to marriage, so to speak. So that's the second reason. Third reason is Peter's vision actually is applicable to all of us. You see, what Peter's writing here is not in a vacuum with the rest of what he, uh, the rest of his letter and the rest of the vision of what the Christian life looks like. In many ways, what he's calling for in marriage is just a microcosm of the Christian life. It's calling to take up the model of Christ, to take up his character, to look to him as our example is the universal call of the Christian life. We saw it last week, and we're going to see it in the rest of the letter. So the specific context might be different... But the pattern is applicable to Christians, whether you're married or single. I want to show you three big things about this alien vision for marriage. I want to set with Christ at the center. I want to suggest it has, uh, the pat- follows the pattern of Christ. You take up the character of Christ. And at the very center has the inspiration of Christ. It's, it's, it's driven by a focus on Christ. So first of all, the pattern of Christ Really, I think what Peter is saying here is your marriage must follow the pattern of Christ in your marriage. You must follow the pattern of Christ in your marriage with submission and sacrifice. Let's return to the question, why is Peter writing this? I think Peter is writing to the wives with the express intention that they win their husbands to Christ. You see, um, he's calling them to live in a respectful, humble, um, holy way so that these husbands will turn to Christ saying respect them as the authorities of the household. Of course, in one sense, that's just the Roman culture, that they, the, 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 uh, the husband would lead the household. So in a sense, he's saying, just as last week Andrew spoke about submitting to the authorities over you, Caesar and all the kind of legal authorities, Peter's saying, well, no, continue to submit to the authorities over you for these wives who, who've got non-Christian husbands. But his overriding emphasis behind that is that these husbands will, will see something different about these women... Now that they've come to faith and be one to Christ. What he's speaking of really is that central idea that when someone comes to faith in Christ, it should transform their life. It's not just that they take up a couple of new ideas and believe something new about the world and about who God is. It's that it should change everything about who they are. And Peter's hoping that as their lives are changed, their husbands will notice it. Some of you are university students. Imagine you came to university, you weren't a Christian, and then uh, your parents didn't see you that whole time and you became a Christian. And then you came back and you saw your parents. And, and they said, there's something different about him. He seems to be more humble, more patient in, with his younger sister, maybe no longer making everything about him. Uh, he's starting to put other people first. Uh, you're more willing to serve around the house. They might say, say, well, it's just he's growing up. Well, they might say, no, there's something different about him. And that's something of what Peter's getting at. He's hoping that the husbands will notice that these women have come to faith and will will be turned to Christ accordingly. His expectation is that their lives will be a living gospel proclamation. But this isn't unique to wives and non-Christian husbands. See, really what he's getting at is that, that the Christian vision for marriage is a living gospel drama. The Christian marriage is a gospel drama. What I mean by that is, this isn't just Peter accommodating to the Roman culture. Actually, this is a principle that that kind of transcends all of Christian marriage. In verse six, Peter says this is a pattern for holy women, women who follow God, like Sarah, uh, wife of Abraham. Uh, the wife of Abraham followed his lead. Of course, when it, when says Sarah described him as Lord, I don't think she's saying she recognised him as God but saying that she recognized him as the, as, the, as the leader of their household. So Peter isn't just giving context uh, instruction for them. Actually, this is speaking something of the, the universal design for Christian marriage. But what Peter's giving here is a, I don't know if you're in a primary school and you're uh, you in a little play, and uh, the, the, the teacher would give everyone lines in the in the play, and you just had a couple of lines. And maybe you didn't know the whole plot of the story, but everyone had their kind of lines given to you. I think that's a little bit of what Peter's giving. Peter's giving a set of instructions, but we haven't quite got the full picture, the full narrative of what Christian marriage is. For that, I think we have to look elsewhere in the New Testament. In Paul's letter to Ephes- into the Ephesians, he describes the mystery, the secret, at the heart of marriage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's speaking back, uh, right back to what was said in Genesis, this idea that a man and woman will come together and become one flesh, a unit, together, a team. But he goes on, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It's a window into another world. The controlling metaphor that helps you understand marriage is that it's a picture of Christ and his love for the church. And this is the reason why husbands are called to lead their families, to lead their wives and children, because the husband is a living metaphor for Christ in their marriage. Paul goes on, he says, Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour say husbands are to lead their families, to be the head of their families, just as Christ is head of the church. The husband and wife have become one flesh, one unit, one team. And the husband is the leader of that team, just as Christ is the leader of the church. Now, it'd be easy to to assume this is some kind of return to kind of uh, traditional, uh, old-fashioned vision of marriage, maybe kind of with sexist overtones. But this is a very different type of leadership. The New Testament calls husbands to Christ-like sacrificial leadership. And if Paul goes on, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's saying husbands are instructed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Think about that picture that Christ ultimately loved the church so much that he was willing to give his life for the church. It's a picture of profound sacrificial love. He loved them so much he was willing to lay his life down for them. And so the husband's leadership is one of complete self-sacrifice. Think how different this is to any kind of vision of leadership in the world. It's so often the case that those who are leading in, in business or whatever, they're leading to feather their own uh, nest, so to speak. You know, think about those, pension fund, uh, those, those business leaders recently we heard about who, uh, while their business was close to collapsing and they knew it was close to collapsing, they were continuing to feed the pension fund. They didn't really care about the people they were leading. They were just in it for themselves. That's so often the posture of leadership in our culture and our context. But this is a very different pattern of leadership, saying Christ's leadership is for the sake of the church, that he laid his life down such that he would present her as his spotless bride. And of course, that's the, that's the controlling picture that is driving the husband's leadership. It means that the husband's leadership can't be an excuse for selfishness. Quite the opposite. In fact, this, it's, a, it's a lifestyle of complete self-sacrifice. Of course, this will involve grand gestures, choices of where you live and what you do, around centered around the needs of your wife and your family. But it will involve thousands of little choices to lay down your life, to make sacrifices in the moment, day after day, moment after moment. Sacrificing sleep, taking time to listen to pray together, to encourage your wife when she feels defeated, serving her in all sorts of ways. The real essence here is regularly and relentlessly choosing to put the needs of your spouse first. And this, I think, is the backdrop to Peter's instruction to to husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. It may sound superficially easy, but I think it's anything but. It's a call to step outside of your own needs, to get inside your wife's feelings, to seek to understand her, not to prioritize your own needs, but to lead in a way that adapts and listens and understands, that is considerate and tender, to stop what you're doing, to step into the world and say, how can I serve you? How can I lay down my life for you? Perhaps more than ever in the age of distraction, where we, everyone's on their phones and constantly being distracted by technology. Actually, this is really significant, taking time just to listen and love and understand your spouse. If you're a husband or you're considering being one one day, you need to hear the weight of what the New Testament is calling you here. To look like Christ in the leadership of your family. To lay down your life. This is a high and weighty calling. It may look beautiful when people see the loving sacrifice that you make, but it will feel hard. If it doesn't, in fact, if it doesn't even feel near impossible, I think we haven't really understood it. But just as the husband is called to follow the pattern of Christ in marriage, so too the wife is called to follow the pattern of Christ. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. When he starts verse 1, likewise, he's speaking about, yes, like the way we're called to submit to the authorities, but he's also saying, like Christ, live a life of submission. Just as Christ submitted to the rulers and authorities, ultimately leading to his own death, so too are wives called to submit themselves to their husbands. And Christ is the ultimate model of submission. What we're saying is basically in marriage, both husband and wife are echoing Christ to the other. Both are playing the Jesus role. You may have heard of a woman called Kathy Keller. She co-wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage with her husband, Tim. Um, and they, um, well, she describes really finding this idea of submission really uncomfortable but it was when she saw that Christ is that leading example, that paradigm model of submission, that she understood that it was no assault on her dignity. This is what she said. If it was was not an assault on the dignity and divinity of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? If it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play the Jesus role in my marriage? Of course, this idea of submitting will feel deeply um, difficult to us. For two one, it's just going to challenge the flesh. None of us wants to submit. We all want to be in control of our lives. We all want to have maximum freedom. So in one sense, it's just going to rub up against every human, n- human nature but in the other sense, it's going, to, it's going to deeply challenge many of the values in, that we have in our culture. And again, it kind of comes back to where you will choose, what will you allow to define your worldview? But I think part of our reaction to this is because this concept has gathered up lots of wrong thinking. The idea has been abused. In fact, it's even been used as an excuse for abuse. So we need to separate myth from Reality. Let me just go through, tell you very quickly what I think submission isn't, and then I'll tell you what submission is. First of all, it doesn't mean that the wife is inferior. There's no suggestion that Christ's submission is because he's inferior in status. This is the king of the universe willing to humble himself. Of course, at the end of the passage, Peter even goes on to say husbands um, treating their wives as co-heirs of the gospel. There's a sense of deep equality here. When he describes them as the weaker vessel, he's not talking about their uh, kind of inferiority. He's He's describing physical weakness. He's saying, generally, almost certainly, the husband is stronger than the wife. He's saying, don't use your physical strength to abuse your wife, as of course so often is the case in our world. But use your strength to serve and protect your wife. Ultimately, submission is not because we think men are, by nature, better leaders or better at making decisions. It's saying husbands and wives both have two roles that both echo and image the person of Christ in marriage. Second of all, submission isn't only a thing for wives. Submission is the calling of every Christian. In the last passage, all people were called to submit to secular authorities. We'll see a bit later that all Christians are called to submit to church leaders. And of course, all Christians are called to submit to God, to Christ. Submission and obedience are the calling for every Christian. Ultimately, this submission is submission to God. Just because, because Jesus entrusts himself to the Father, so he entrusts himself to these authorities. Submission isn't absolute or unrestricted. I think some of you may hear this and think, does this just give it a license for men to abuse their wives? Actually, because both are submitted to God, the secular authorities and the church leaders, that's not the case. says, so actually, if, if there was any case of abuse, then the wife should absolutely call those secular authorities and call on the church leaders, saying Christ is the ultimate authority in marriage, and both are submitted to him, seeking to follow his will together. Both are in a kind of web of submission to different authorities over them. Finally, submission isn't being silent or never voicing an opinion. You know, this idea um, of one flesh really speaks to this, that you are a team together in marriage. What it says is you are dependent on each other. You need each other to call out each other's blind spots, to challenge each other, to encourage each other, to speak into each others' lives. My wife's been away for a week. She's not very well. My parents are looking after her and and Caleb. And I have really missed her challenge. You know, we've been talking all the time. But there's a sense, even this week, I felt a sense we are deeply dependent on each other. And we need each other all the time to speak into each other's lives. So there's no sense of of one not being able to speak. It's a team together, running together. But it does mean that the husband bears the ultimate responsibility for the family. He's the head of the family, He must seek to lead his family towards Christ's will. And I think probably where this works its way out is decision making. When the rubber hits the road, the wife must ultimately be willing to follow the lead of her husband. Now often... Almost all the Christian couples I know who think about this would say, we're seeking to discern the will of God together. We're seeking to understand what God's calling us to. We're seeking to make wise choices. We need each other to speak into each other's lives. But just occasionally as we go through life, there are times where, as a husband, I feel a responsibility to say, I'm going to have to make the final call here. Maybe there's time where you're at loggerheads and and you can't work it out, and the husband's saying, no, I've got responsibility before God for this family, and I'm going to have to make this call. One example that spoke to me was a, a, a friend who 's a pastor he has two children and the, the older son is really struggling at school and he was coming home every evening in tears and really finding it school difficult and The parents were kind of pulling their hair out they weren 't sure what to do he was really like feeling deeply demotivated and and the parents were, got to a decision point where they were like, either we have to take him out of school or, or, or we leave him in there, but, it, but like we're so, this is so hard, we think we have, might have to take him out. And they were really agonizing over this decision, and they felt like either way it had huge ramifications for their for their son in primary school. And eventually, I can't remember whether it was his wife or, or him, but, but but one of them said, look, I think you're going to have to make the decision in this. You're the, you're the head of the household. I think the responsibility sits with you on this. And and uh, I said, "How did your?" I asked him, "How did your wife feel about that?" And she said, "Actually, you know what? I felt a tremendous sense of relief that uh, that I'd that ultimately he took this responsibility before God. It was a sense, actually, a sacrificial act that he would take that responsibility for that decision. And you know, things are good. You'll be glad to hear things that he is flourishing in school. What it's saying, really, is that taking together, both parties are imaging the person of Christ." in a costly way. The, the husband is choosing to sacrifice his life, to lay down his life for his wife, and the wife is choosing to trust and follow his leadership. Both are imaging Christ, but in a costly way. And really, this speaks to the reality of what love is, that love is about self-denial and not self-fulfillment. Both of these parties involve a deep sense of self-denial. Now, the reason why I think this is relevant is because in our culture, we think of love as a a deep set. Like, usually you say, I love something, like I love steak or whatever. You know, you think of it as something really enjoying something. Actually, this totally reorientates what love is. It's not about just simply enjoying something, not just kind of, I love something, so I think it's going to fulfill me. Actually, love is a costly action. we see this in uh, romantic love. People think of love as just kind of being infatuated with someone and being obsessed by them and not being able to stop thinking about them. But of course, that phase often comes to an end, that honeymoon era in any relationship. That will only take you so far. Real love is the long, hard commitment to lay down your life for the other. Real love is the spouse choosing to care for their partner in sickness and in health. Real love is that spouse who who has a sick husband or wife and then spends the rest of their life choosing to care for that person. Real love is the commitment to say, I'm yours and I'm willing to deny myself and lay down my life for the rest of my life, come what may. It speaks to that naivety about marriage. Sometimes people get married and they're like, oh, I'm really excited. I found the person who's going to satisfy and fulfill me and enable me to meet my dreams, uh, fulfill my dreams. And then a few months later, they say, this is really hard. Like, you know, I, 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 uh, maybe even love shouldn't feel this hard. They say, you know, basically, I just thought it would be easy. I say, no, Actually, if love is about self-denial, if love is about laying down your life for the other, of course it's going to feel difficult. Like the picture of dying to self is an inherently painful one. I think this will have implications for who you date. When you think about what it means to who, who you want to look for in a, in a partner, maybe the, I would argue the Christian test, i.e., are they a Christian, isn't enough. Saying, are they seeking to lay down their lives and follow Christ in every way? Do they have this vision of what love will require in marriage? And the irony is we don't pursue our own fulfillment, but actually when both parties choose to lay down their lives for the other in this sacrifice and this trust of submission, both deny themselves, both experience deep fulfillment. As they operate together, laying down their lives as one team, I think they become a beautiful and unstoppable force. So that's the pattern of Christ. Let's look at the next one, the character of Christ. It's very easy when you look at this passage to get focused on the pattern of leadership, the structure of how it works. But, but Peter's not just describing, he's describing the character of marriage. He's taught, calling hu- husbands and wives to take on the, the, the character of Christ in their marriage. He's speaking about the aroma, the flavor. Think about when you go into someone's house and there's a kind of, there's a bit of a smell, saying, what is the... <laughs> I've been living on my own for a week, so you can imagine. <laughs> that, might be, that might be the case in my house. Um... I can't I can possibly comment. Um, the point is, what is the aroma of your marriage? What is the smell? What is the scent that you give off? Peter's saying, actually, your marriage should give off the aroma of Christ. The people should be able to look at you and see the character of Christ in how you are operating together. This goes for marriage, but actually it goes for the community of Christ, as we'll see in a moment. What's he describing? Well, in verse 3 to 4, he's, he's encouraging wives not to focus on outward adornment, but the imperishable, in other translations, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which he describes as precious before the Lord. What's he talking about? Well, he can't be talking about person. I don't think he's talking about personality. I think it's much deeper than that. Neither is he talking about saying that wearing nice clothes is evil. He's saying. There's something more significant, something far more important for the health of your marriage, and he's saying a beautiful marriage does not exi- uh, exist because you have uh, beautiful partners coming together, or the, the it's not ba- the beauty of your marriage is not based on the physical attractiveness of the two parties, but their character, their attitudes. Of course, again, I think this has implications for who we pursue in dating. We live in a deeply visual culture where physical attractiveness has often become the driving quality to look for in a, in a, a spouse or dating partner. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be a factor. I think you should be attracted to your uh, future spouse in, in every sense. But he's saying f- real beauty is far more, imp- far more than that. He's describing a Gentleness a tenderness with the other, not a harsh abrasiveness, but a softness, a considerate and kind demeanor with your spouse. But that word gentleness is perhaps better translated as humility. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe himself when he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. This tenderness, this gentleness with your spouse comes from a place of deep humility. Humility. You see the same humble meekness on show in the person of Christ in the passage just before this. He said when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In the face of aggression and uh, insults, he didn't assert his own needs, but humbly accepted the punishment that he didn't deserve. You can see this humility in the way husbands are called to honor and esteem their wives, to respect them, not perhaps, proudly asserting their own needs, but tenderly recognizing their gifts and, and um, talents. And I would argue that really what's behind this is saying that marriage, and, and I would argue community in general, requires this same gentle humility to flourish. Let me give you a couple of examples. When, you get to, when you're married, you have to learn to take yourself out of the picture. Marriage will require you becoming profoundly other-centered. The talk about humility is not thinking Less of yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Real humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Taking yourself out of the picture, thinking, how can I serve the other? Humble person is not trying to make everything about themselves and their needs, they're other centered. If you enter marriage with a desire to make everything about yourself, really you're not looking for a spouse, you're looking for a servant. Secondly, I think marriage is going to expose your flaws. This coming together in a one flesh union means you're going to see each other in all of your naked glory. Uh, Forgive me, you know what I mean. The kind of the the, the kind of the full pack. um, They're going to see you in all of your brokenness. They're going to see you in all of your brokenness. I used to think I wasn't that selfish. Until I got married. My point is, that I, until I got exposed every day to the, to the fact that I could have a choice between meeting my needs or meeting the, my needs of my wife or my son, and I'd relentlessly, regularly choose my own needs. I'm not saying, by the way, that marriage, married people are more holy, or, or it's, it's really rather, marriage is like, you know when you go to the dentist and that, that light shines itself on a tooth and suddenly you see all that pa- bacteria and plaque that, wasn't there befo- that you didn't see before? Marriage is a little bit like that. It just shows up the stuff that was already there. And then one of two things can happen when that happens. You can choose to ignore uh, that, that light being shined upon you. You can choose to try and deflect it. You can choose to try and point out flaws in your spouse rather than yourself and try and say, no, you, you're the one in the wrong. And then what happens is people can go into patterns of bitterness. And actually, marriage ends up making people more ugly rather than more beautiful. Or you can humbly accept that you're in the wrong. You can ask for God's grace. You can together come to the cross and receive God's forgiveness can dust yourselves off and carry on. And the deciding factor of whether you respond in the right way or the wrong way will be whether or not you've understood this tender humility that that Peter's calling you to. See, the gospel starts with the assumption that sin has permeated your life, that it's distorted your vision, and it's affected your character. And if you don't know that, you'll be forever fighting and trying to deflect rather than accepting and seeking to change. The, your pride will be the greatest enemy of your growth and your spouse's growth. And that's true whether you're married or not. The Christian life is a constant process of God putting his finger on different things. And, and you have a choice then. Do you humbly respond and say, that's actually freeing and I get put that down? Or do you hang on tightly and ignore the voice of God? And I would argue this same humility is essential for the flourishing of our community together as a church. See, Peter's instructions for marriage are not in a vacuum. In verse 8, he describes the same kind of characteristics. He describes a unity of mind, a sympathy, a brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's that same tone of gentleness, that tenderness of one another as we live together as a community. Remember, the the family in, in the Christian vision is not just the nuclear family, not just a biological family, it's the spiritual family the posture of the willingness to prefer others, to be loving and considerate with one another will be essential for a healthy community to grow up here together. And we see this in a few ways. You can kind of use these as diagnostic questions. Do you approach friendships with the attitude of what you can gain or what you can give? Many of us approach friendships with, how will this benefit me? How is this person helping me? Does this person really like me? You know, we get into those little insecurity circles of worrying about whether they like us or not. And really what we're saying is, Basically, does this, do they feed my ego? Humility, humility means you can approach your friendships in exactly the opposite spirit. Actually, you know, how can I serve this person? How can I love them? If you observe a distance between you and some, one of your friends, are you going to push in? Are you going to say, oh, I feel distant. I'm going to go and love them. Or are you going to say, oh, that person hasn't spoken to me and ignore them? Second, I think it speaks to how we resolve conflict together as a family. See, genuine humility enables us to pursue reconciliation rather than division. Think about, we're going to offend each other. It's part of a gospel assumption that at times, as we rub up against the sea, alongside each other as a family, we're going to offend. The only question is, are you willing to, at that point to say, actually, yeah, that's, the gospel says that that's almost to be expected. I'm a flawed person, you're a flawed person, we're going, to have, we're going to at times have conflict. The question is, are you going to say that, or are you going to say You know, we live in a culture which is so quick to be offended, so quick to drop friendships when someone offends us. Are you going to walk in those relationships in a humility that is willing to recognize your own flaws? And quite frankly, humility just makes you a more attractive person, makes you the kind of person who's interested in someone rather than just worrying about whether they find you interesting. It gives you a different posture. You say, how can I learn from others? How can I serve them? How does this, where does this all end up? Well, I think it ends up that whether we're talking about marriage or we're talking about a community, we want people to come into that, into that home, into that, wherever it is, in that environment and say, why are people here so other-centered? Why are they so welcoming? Why are they so interested in me? Why are people so willing to acknowledge their own weaknesses? Why is this community so harmonious? I know they're all different, but why is this marriage so full of peace and harmony? And the answer is because we will say, because Christ is at the center of this community and he is changing us. He's humbling us. He's unlabeling us to live together in gentle, tender humility and compassion. Now, I realize that as I set all of that out, you think this feels deeply impossible. So briefly, let me, and it is in one sense, absolutely impossible. It's right that you recognize this is impossible without Christ. But let me give you a few, really want me say this as, as how this is possible. It's that you, by putting your focus on Christ, when Christ is the inspiration, he's the, the driving force behind this vision of marriage and this vision of community. And really, it's in a few ways. One is that the gospel shapes us. This Christ-like humility and character is only possible when you understand the gospel. The, the gospel says you're more flawed than you realize, but you're more loved than you could ever know. It means I don't need to justify myself or hide my flaws because Christ knows all the flaws in me. I can accept them, but he loves me. I'm not destroyed by them. I'm not, put, I'm not kind of put, sent to the floor by them. Second of all, we can look to our future rewards. In verse five, Peter describes wives as holy women who hoped in God. Earlier on, he describes Jesus as one who hoped in God. This future hope really speaks to the reality that there will be injustice in this life. Last week, we talked about the idea that we're going to submit to evil authorities. There are going to be times in our lives where it feels unfair. Things feel unfair. Consider these women. They've got husbands who aren't followers of Christ. Maybe they've got all sorts of bad habits. And they think, oh, I just want to throw off the shackles of this relationship. But Peter's saying, no, honor them. Love them. Be like Christ to them. But it's not for Christians to take retribution because they hope in God. Their hope is not only in this life, they believe a day is coming when Christ will judge the living and the dead and make everything right. As a Christian, this life will involve costly obedience, and there is reward now. You experience his love, we've been put in in a family, he's poured out his love on you, but that doesn't mean it will always feel easy. For some people who are married, their marriage will always feel more challenging, more of a cross to bear than others. I'm talking about husbands or wives. Perhaps walking with a spouse who has a debilitating illness. Or deep character issues which don't seem to really be resolved. Of course, there are many trials in life. Some of you who are married will say, yeah, there are things that I don't feel are going to be solved until Jesus returns. But if that's you, your great strength will come when you look to those future rewards. When you put your hope in God, you look forward to a day when you'll be home. When the trials of this life have come to an end. When you meet Jesus face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So don't give up on the slow and painful trials of life because one day you're going to meet with Jesus and all of the suffering and sin of this life will be over. Think about Jesus when he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He went through the trial, because he, not because, but he knew that one day full joy was coming. The other side of the cross. And finally, The whole instruction in this passage is to look to Christ, knowing that he's making you more like him. The major call in these verses, the whole idea is becoming becoming like Christ. Becoming a servant leader like Christ, submitting like he did, that you become like him. In verse 21 it says, Christ suffered for you so that you might follow in his steps. The only way to become like someone is to observe them, to immerse yourself in him, to abide with him. If you're struggling to deny yourself, if you're struggling to walk in this humility, you only have to look at the one who went before you, the one who is the perfect paradigm and model of this, of this sacrifice, this submission, and this humility. But it's not like you know how like you watch a football team. Sometimes you're in those in the stands in a football stadium, and you look around and you think the football fans watching this this game have no relationship with what's going on the pitch. Like you're with a bunch of older, slightly portly gentlemen. I'm not talking about myself, you know. The other other guys I was with, and um, and you just think they they're never going to get on the pitch. That's that's not like what it, I think. That's not what it's talking about here. I think it's much more like you're on the pitch with Christ, and that He is your ultimate example. He's the captain. He's the star player, but. That beauty that you see in you, in him, he's put the seed of his beauty in you. You're sharing in something of Christ's beauty as he's put his spirit in you. He, you're learning to be conformed to the image of his son. So when you look to Christ and you see his beauty, you know in some way you share in that beauty. And he's conforming you. He's making you into his spotless bride. Think about, remember, this whole picture of marriage. It's Christ loving the church so that he would present her as his spotless, beautiful bride. That is the vision that Christ has for you. He's saying, don't be disheartened by the fact that this feels so countercultural because I am making you my spotless, perfect bride. I am making you more to be like me. And as you walk through the struggles of this life, as you engage with the challenge and trials in marriage or whatever, community and every other context, know that those experiences themselves are the ones that, where Christ is forming his beauty in you. The very things that are hard are great because they are making you more to the person that God's called you to be. Hallelujah. So as I close, really I want to say two things. If you're not a Christian, I want you to look behind this model of marriage. And remember that what this marriage is, is just a picture of the bigger reality. The invitation from Christ to be reconciled. A picture of his incredible sacrificial love on this reconciliation mission to be united with you. You can't have the ethics. You can't say, I like this model of marriage, but I don't really like Christ. It hangs and falls on the person of Christ. You, You must hear his call in this vision of marriage to actually, that he wants to be reconciled with you before we talk about relationships. But if you're a Christian, I want you to hear the comprehensiveness of this call. The sense that Christ wants to have every part of your life, your married life, your relationships, your friendships. He's calling you to become a living sacrifice, to lay down your life, to submit yourself to the authorities he's placed over you, to take on his character, to become like him. To say no to our selfish desires and to surrender completely to Christ's ways. The gospel is the way into all of this. The reminder that it's not by our strength, it's not that we're not on this journey of transformation, anything because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Why don't the band come up? I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we want to thank you for this beautiful vision of your love that we have. Thank you that you loved your church. You're the perfect sacrificial husband who loves his bride. That you were willing to come and die for us, to model this sacrificial love, to be the perfect example of humility, to be the one who would surrender yourself to, to submit to these authorities, ultimately leading to your death. Lord, we thank you that you are perfect. We thank you that we'd have to conjure up a vision of what married life looks like. That we'd have to figure this stuff out in all its detail because we look to you, Lord. We look to you and we want to fashion our lives after you. We thank you that you have us on this transformation journey. That you are forming us, you are shaping us, you are helping us to become your spotless bride. Thank you that you've washed us clean. Thank you that the work's already been done on the cross 2,000 years ago. Thank you that we are yours. Nothing can separate us from your love. But we thank you, Lord, that one day we will see you face to face. That this transformation journey will be over. That we are going to be in a place where there's no more sin. There's no more suffering. There's no more death. There's no more pride. (laughs) There's no more judgment. There's no more people looking down on others. There's no more broken relationships. One day we're going to be in a perfect place with you, Lord. But until then, Lord, would you help us to submit ourselves to you? Would you help us to live lives of costly surrender? Help us to be your people on this earth. Help us to walk according to your alien wisdom. Help us to be your people and to shine out with your love. Help our relationships, help this community to show people your sacrificial love in the way we relate to each other. Help us to show people your tender, gentle mercy as we relate to one another. Lord, we want to submit to you. Help us to know what this looks like. Teach us, Lord. Come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We can't do this without you. We need you, Lord. Amen.